Well, it's a privilege to be back here with you after being away for a couple weeks um, on the East Coast. And uh, it's a good time away. Uh, it was sort of a mix between a family trip and it felt like a work trip because I did a men's retreat um, and ended up between preaching at a couple churches and then four times at the men's retreat, six times in 10 days. And uh, that was, it was kind of like a little circuit trip down the East Coast, uh, doing some preaching and seeing family and um, just participating in some good ministry. And then a little wave time out in the surf on the East Coast. It was kind of fun, uh, but not good waves because it's the East Coast. But it's still, uh, we pretend and have fun out in the water um, surfing. But I, one of the sermons I preached when I was there at the men's retreat is a sermon from Psalm 32. And I think it's an important one for us this morning as well. Psalm 32 speaks of uh, the weight of sin being lifted off. And part of my men's retreat time was speaking to holiness. And I preached a couple of those sermons uh, before I went uh, here to try them out. And again, talk about what it, what it looks like to fight your sin and to genuinely let your personal, private sin life hit you and hit your conscience in a way that you can do something about it, that you'll want to do something about it. And we talked about a couple of weeks ago, just as part of the Stay Engaged series, staying engaged not only at church, but in your personal life with killing sin, being at war with it. Well, part of preaching those sermons begs for preaching a sermon on what it's like to experience the weight of your sin lifted off, the the burden of your sin sort of flying away off of your shoulders, because that's also part of what Christ gives us in our Christian journeys together. We're always going to sin in this life, but the joy of forgiveness and the joy of repentance is something that we should experience regularly and ongoingly. So I want to talk about that this morning. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 32. We're going to be looking back at David's uh, sin journey that led him to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a retrospective of what happened to him in not the specific sins that he did. We're going to talk about those, but the guilt that he bore for a year after his unconfessed sin was plaguing him. What does that look like? What does that feel like? And then not only that, but what is it like to have the sin burden lifted off and how great that is to feel the release of repentance, the joy of your salvation. So important to have. R.C. Sproul, the late uh, professor, theologian, pastor, he said that he had a ministry friend of his who uh, was an expert in psychiatry who begged him to join psychiatry and to be a counselor. And Sproul said, you know, jokingly, as he always did, I'm not qualified to do that, you know. And, he, and the, his friend replied, what clients need isn't a doctor. They need a priest. I guess his friend was a Roman Catholic or something. But he said 90% of the issues that this psychiatrist dealt with were traced back to a guilty conscience, a guilty conscience. And I would say in a broad, broader sense, sleeplessness, heartache, worry, anxiety, and guilt, it throttles 
the physical experience as much as the emotional one. It's the catch-22 of living in the world of yourself where you're just saying, I can't understand my confusion and my catch-22 life where I can't get a handle on feeling better or having joy. It's the unconfessed sin that plagues us. So we're going to talk about having a clean conscience from Psalm 32. We've been talking about that from Hebrews. We're going to pick that up in a few weeks. Hebrews 9 about the conscience. But here's another expression of the conscience and dealing with that. Psalm 32 breaks up in two ways. Verses 1 to 5 is David's story. He's reflecting back on his story, his experience, his testimony. And then verses 6 through 11 is a response in instruction. What do you not do and what do you do now as a growing believer. So it's a reflection, a retrospective reflection on what happened to him. And then verses six to 11, what do you do about it? This Psalm, if you look at the superscription, which is the little um, smaller type at the top of the Psalm, which many believe is inspired as well. This is called a maskil of David, which means this is a Psalm that's not only poetic and beautiful and illustrative, but it's also proverbial and it's instructive. It's what to do or not do. It's a penitential psalm. It's one of seven in the Psalter, which speaks of repentance, which speaks of forgiveness. It's sung by the nation of Israel. It's uh, sung for direction. It's something that captures the imagination and crescendos in joy. It's a great one. It's a great one. All the psalms are great. This is really a favorite of mine. So David's testimony, verses 1 to 5. Let me read verses 1 to 5 just to get us started. It's a masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Let's stop there. Uh, This is speaking again of David's experience from his sin. His sin, and we're going to look at it from 2 Samuel, his sin is one where in one fell swoop, David transgressed or broke five of the Ten Commandments, like all at once. He committed adultery. He committed murder. He stole Bathsheba from Uriah. He covered it in lies. He was coveting. I mean, just think of the commandments of the thou shalt nots. This is a man after God's own heart. This is the one who was selected because of Saul's pride and sin, where Samuel selected David, saying you, he was a man of, after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13, 13. And yet he committed capital offenses. Capital punishment was what he deserved. He besmirched the name of God as king, political leader, and also a spiritual leader. Kings of Israel were spiritual leaders. And the background story just gives the bullet points of steps that he went through digressing to fall into this sin. 
It's been said that when someone falls, and specifically if they're a spiritual leader, their fall is not a very far fall. Picture falling like a ladder, and it's someone who's just digressing, going rung by rung down to the bottom, and then they just step off the ladder. J.C. Ryle put it this way, Bishop of Liverpool, he said, Whatever the world may please to say, there are no little sins. All great buildings are made up of little parts. The first stone is as important as the other. All habits are formed by a succession of little acts. And the first little act is of mighty consequence. There are two ways of coming down from the top of a church steeple. One is to jump down and the other is to come down by the steps. But both will lead you to the bottom. So also there are two ways of going to hell One is to walk into it with your eyes open. Few people do that. The other is to go down by the steps of little sins. That way, I fear, is all too common. This is talking in the ultimate sense of someone who's not a believer. David, being a believer, still reflects this sin digression step by step. So what were his steps? First one is the king got very passive. Turn in your Bibles. You can mark your um, Psalm 32, but turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. He was passive. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Two comments of his passivity. It's when kings go to battle, guess what David did? He stayed at home. And then there's the sense that all of Israel went, but he didn't. Sent Joab instead. He's up using Joab later. That's why the mention is there. Then David's compromise, step two. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. 2 Samuel 11, 2 to 5, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. When did he do this? It's in evening time. It's when nobody's looking around. It's when he could, under cloak of darkness, with his passive mindset, fall into sin. Many times, not just men, but Any of you in the wrong place at the wrong time become very vulnerable, very susceptible to sin. That's wrong. And it's important to understand that we have to guard where we are and why we are where we are whenever we are somewhere. We have to be thinking about why we're doing what we're doing. Thirdly, he covets. He entertains lusts. He inquires about it. So he's in verse two, it happened late one night. He rose from his couch. He's walking on the roof. He saw from the roof, a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And then David sent verse three and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him. And he lay with her. What did he do? He basically had an internal conversation with himself, not listening to counselors that are saying, wait, this is Uriah's wife. Isn't this Bathsheba? I mean, naming her, associating with her in a family. He just ignores it. 
He covets and steals and takes her. And there's consequences. Not only does he compromise, covet, and steal, the consequences are verse 5, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So there's no getting out of this, except David believes there is. He lies to try to cover the evidence. And I think a lot of times we don't investigate the depth of perversion that David is involved in as a believer where he's trying to cover his tracks. He's trying to lie for what he's done. Verse six, so David sent word to Joab. This is the one he sent off into battle instead of him going. Send me Uriah the Hittite and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Don't just dismiss that. Look how David's just being so casual. So how's the war going? How, how's it happening? You know, what's happening out there? I mean, people are dying. It's a bloody battle. And he's just acting like all is well and he's leading from the armchair. How's it going? So he says... After making chit-chat to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. I'm not sure what that is, but he's sending a gift along, trying to bribe um, Uriah's loyalty. But Uriah's personal integrity wins the day. Verse 9, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants. There's accountability. There's verification that he did this. He did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? He's counseling Uriah to sin. And Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord. Joab and the, and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I not go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? Shall I do that? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Men are dying in battle. The contrast between Uriah's integrity and David's lack of integrity is just stark. It's based on Uriah's focus on God that is keeping him pure, that's keeping him on track. Just like Joseph, how could I do such a thing to my God when when Potiphar's wife was tempting him? It's this vertical focus that is keeping him pure. So David then stoops to another level. He facilitates Uriah getting drunk. So not only has he coveted, lied, stolen, murdered, committing adultery, he's now resorting to drunkenness. Verse 13, and David invited him and he ate in his presence and dranks and so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went to, the, to lie on his couch. Again, here's the accountability. Here's the alibi with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So then he murders. Step seven, David set up Uriah's death. Second Samuel 11, verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it. By the hand of Uriah, in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Then step eight, look at the hardness here. David justifies his sin. Look at the hardness of his heart. Verse 25, David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, this is David's commanding officer, do not let this matter trouble you 
For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. I mean, Joab knows what's going on. Joab isn't unwise to David's schemes. He's trying to get Joab in cahoots with him. Do you see that? See how how perverse David is being? The, The reason I'm getting into the depth of perversion here is because I want you who have likewise sinned in these ways to understand that the guilt of your sin can lift off of you just as it did David's shoulders. Do you see that? It got this bad. I mean, this is a clear cover-up. This is David influencing Joab just to say, look, it's just battle. It's just war. It doesn't matter. Just strengthen your attack. Think about it in terms of strengthening the attack and overthrowing it. But even though Uriah is going to be killed, just justify it. That's the sin level that went on. That's the perversion. And David justifies it and he's racked with guilt. And we just talked about that. The remedy comes with a prophet, Nathan, who comes to town to call him out. And this is chapter 12. Nathan uses a parable to confront him. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a, in a certain city and one rich and the other poor and the rich man had very many flocks and herds and the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and he brought it up and it grew and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. This is, in other words, a very affectionate pet-like situation. This is an animal that is loved within the household. You have the rich man with many flocks and herds. Verse 2, you have the poor man, nothing but one little ewe lamb. This is love. I mean, we have dogs, we, you know, that we kind of are affectionate with and love. I have a love-hate relationship with my animals, but, you know, other members of my family love love the animals more. We have bunny rabbits that are loved. I don't really pick them up because they scratch you and run from me. But in this case, you have an animal that is just loved like a, like a child. And Nathan, like a Biblical counselor is involving the emotion of the moment with David. He's drawing David in as a shepherd boy to remember how his earlier days as a shepherd boy, where he loved you lambs like that, like pets, and was just a poor shepherd's boy. So he's putting David right back into that context with this parable. So the rich man, if you look at verse Four says, now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests that the rich man was, you know, unable to, unwilling to do that, who had come to him and he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then look at verse five. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Um, David's anger just went off the rails. I mean, he is blowing up over this situation. And ironically, what David had done in terms of murdering, in terms of adultery as the king of Israel, he deserved to die. Um, If somebody takes a ewe lamb and 
slaughters it. They just, according to the law, needed to make restitution. So David is fully wrapped into this with guilt that has skewed his own judgment, and he's gone very extreme. Now, we don't know um, what Nathan's sort of skeletal structure was like, but has anyone ever thought, heard this sermon before where it's like, and Nathan, at that certain point, because I just came from the South, I'll summon my inner Southern self, you know, and he extended his long bony finger. Well, who knows if Nathan's finger was bony, right? Perhaps he was short and stocky. We don't know. We have no idea. But nevertheless, look at verse seven. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And verses 11 and 12 reveal the consequences of sin. Um, Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. I mean, there's public humiliation. There's evil, there's insurrection. We know that Absalom comes after him, one of his sons later, and creates insurrection in the kingdom. And, you know, his son is going to die. Look at verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. So this is a year later after after David's massive cover-up. He's beginning to own his sin and repent, but there's consequences. Verse 14, nevertheless, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house. There's open shame. David's not justifying his sin at this point. He's beginning to open up about repentance. Look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the actual testimony prayer of repentance. This is the immediate response of David after he's confronted. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. And then verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Well, he had sinned against Uriah, he had sinned against Bathsheba, he had sinned against Joab, he had sinned against the nation of Israel, he had sinned against all kinds of people. But at that point, that moment, he was thinking vertically and saying, God, I have sinned against you. In other words, absorb all of my sin and forgive me. He's not trying to blame it on anybody else. He's not blaming the process. When someone is not truly repentant, they're going to blame the process. They're going to blame the messenger. They're going to, they're going to blame anybody. Their parents are going to blame how they were treated. They're going to blame shift instead of owning and absorbing their own sin. So how do we learn from the king's mistakes? What do we do? How do, we, how do we come to a place of repentance? Well, look at Psalm 32. Let's unpack this. First of all, we need to resonate with David's story. We need to own our own version of our sins to experience the blessing. Because with all of what David went through, look at verse 1. He's blessed. The consequences are still there. Absalom is committing insurrection around this time dividing his kingdom out from under him. He's lost 
his child that he had with Bathsheba. And yet verse one, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's joy here. He's now free. He's no longer under the burden. You might say as you're sitting here, there's no way that I could ever have joy in my salvation again. There's no way. I'm down and I'm going to stay down. I'm hurting. I'm never going to be free from my guilt. Well, look at David. He's blessed. It's a deep-seated, faith-driven, deep well based on God and his grace, not a man-centered, whimsical excitement. This is a new day and a new beginning. Verse 1, it says, his transgression is forgiven. His sin is covered. It's covered. It's like the mercy seat, the blood that is spilt at the mercy seat in the inner sanctum. His sin is covered. It's a picture of the cross that covers all of our sins. Now, the word sin is used in three different ways here in two verses. The word transgression means to cross the line. It means to go over, to transgress. Don't do this. He did that anyway. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, the law says. He did it anyway. Don't lie about it. He did it anyway. Don't covet. Don't steal. He did all those things willingly. And the Lord forgave that sin. Then you have the word sin that's covered in verse 1, whose sin is covered. What is that? That's talking about a sin of missing the mark, not hitting the target. It's the idea of doing something through omission. Remember when David didn't go to war? It was the sin of omission. He was omitting himself from doing the right thing. He was passive. He was forgiven for his passivity. So he was forgiven for being proactively sinful. He was forgiven for being passive. And then thirdly, he was forgiven for being perverse. That's the word iniquity in verse two. It's the idea of being just messed up in your mind. Say, where did that happen? Remember where in Second Samuel eleven fifteen, he's writing that to Joab. Hey, just rationalize killing Uriah. Just pull the troops back. This is how it goes in war. This is how it rolls in war. People die. Hey, just think about winning the battle. And he's skewed in his thinking and he's drawing other people away into their sin. Sin is like that. Sinners typically don't like to sin by themselves. They want a co-sinner with them. Bad company corrupts good morals. And when somebody's sinning, they want to do it with somebody else so that they can rationalize it together and feel like they're getting away with something. Well, the idea here is that all three areas are covered. All three areas are forgiven. That word forgiven verse, in verse one is where I themed the entire Psalm sermon. It's the weight of sin lifted. It's the Hebrew word nasah and You know, when I was studying Hebrew, if you've ever studied a language, uh, typically, well, if you're like me, you like to use what are called mnemonic devices. In Hebrew, the word for head is rosh. And, you know, all of us Hebrew geeks would uh, just say, well, you know, it's the rosh on top of your head, like a rosh, ha ha. Anyway, 
Sorry, I'm geeking out. It's okay. But there is, for NASA, I think of NASA and I think of rockets lifting off. And we used to, in in a youth internship where I was in Titusville, Florida, we would go to the top of a spire of the church and we would watch the shot take off, the space shuttle take off, because they would have several launches. Back then, they were launching it several times. And it was fun to watch it uh, off of Cape Canaveral. And, And so that word picture of Nassau, which is forgiveness, is the idea of your sin rocketing off your shoulders, where you just feel better. You say, do the consequences go away? Do, do the, rem- the remembrances of it go away? Well, not entirely. But to know that God has forgiven you in this way, every which way, the sin of omission, the passivity, the sin of transgression, the proactivity, the sin of Um, iniquity, which is the perversion, the maniacal part in your mind where you were messed up. He's forgiven it all. He's lifted that burden off of your shoulders. That's the idea here. That's what David is rejoicing over. It's atoned for. First John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all sins. Counts no iniquity. You know, Paul picked up on this in Romans 4, 3 through 5. He was so moved by this passage, he quotes it in light of being justified. Verse 5 of Romans 4. And to the one who does not work but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's the idea that we're made righteous with God because we believe. And verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous, righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. That's a quote right from this verse. And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is a New Testament Christian 21st century Anchorage Grace Church application. Blessed are you when your sins are forgiven. When the burden lifts off. That's, that's the Christian life. This is what should be the normal Christian experience. This is why we should desire and expect to be joy-filled, even through the complexities of life and sin and guilt. There should be joy. There should be joy. This is the testimony. Okay, well, look at verse 3. Look at the contrast to this experience. He's retrospectively... Talking, he said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Silent, what does he mean? He was deaf to himself. He was anesthetized. He was under, you know, whatever. He was, I, I can't even think of the word. It's when, when you are, when you're going into surgery and you're under anesthesia or whatever, and you're just cuckoo. I mean, that's the malaise that you're experiencing when you're in denial over your own sins that you've committed. Big sins, big sins. Not just all the little steps that you need to work on and try to figure out with people. And I understand that and complicated things. I'm saying big sins where he'd walk the steps and then jump down and done it. We can't live in denial. We've got to work to confess those sins. I preached this in uh, Virginia and the pastor came up afterwards and he said, one of the key applications in his own life is is being willing to take a big sin to God, but then be willing to, in the context of a safe relationship, confess it to a brother or sister and and acknowledge it. Be real with something that you've done. 
and to pray about it together. And I think that's helpful. When he kept silent, it was plaguing him. It was creating a hard place in his conscience. Verse three, his bones were wasting away. What does that mean? It could mean festering sores, but it probably is the catch 22 of just sleep loss where you just, you're aching, you're groaning. Spurgeon said it's like a horse roaring of a wounded beast. It's not, it's, it's like you're screaming inside. You can't let it out. Verse four, for night and day, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat by the heat of summer. It's the finger of God on you. And it's not just his finger, but his whole hand is on you. First John 1 9 says to confess your sins. It, it's the idea of saying the same thing that God already knows to be true about your life. That's First John 1 9, confession, the word homologeo. You're saying the same thing that God already knows to be true in your life. You know, some of you have done things that only you think no one else knows about, but God knows. And perhaps other people do know, or they have felt the implications of what you've done and they suspect something, but God knows precisely what you've done. And our hearts tell us that nobody knows, but God knows. He does know. And so it's healthy to talk to God about it, to acknowledge it. Verse five, I acknowledge my sin. That's not formal confession. That's not even visiting, you know, the pastor and talking about it, which you might need to do. Visit a pastor, an elder, spiritual leader. But it's just very naturally and natural conversational words. Talking to God about what you've done. That's very important, is it not? Bringing yourself to the place where you can talk openly to God, setting aside some time, going somewhere private, and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I've done this. And I need to, perhaps you need to deal with it. Maybe you need to make restitution with someone. Maybe you need to make a relationship right with someone. But just letting your guard down with God and being willing to talk to him about it is so important, is it not? Is it not? That's the Christian life, just talking openly. I would even say out loud. I don't want to be legalistic. I know prayers inside and outside, but just conversing with God. That's what yields this burden lifting. Proverbs 28, 13 is one of the best counseling verses I know. It says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Here's the principle. If you, I'll use my jacket. It's like if if your sin is this tie and you, if you cover your sin, often God will rip it off like a Band-Aid and expose you. But if you're going, you know what? I'm going to open my sin to God and be open. Then God provides mercy. God covers it. If you If you cover, God will uncover. If you uncover, God will cover it. God will cover it. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, our repentance should be as notorious as our sins. That's why I read 2 Corinthians 7. It's being willing to make it right at the level that it was wrong. 
You don't have to hang all your dirty laundry out to everyone, but you need to make it right within the circle of influence that that sin had. And being open to God at that level is the first step. Well, now let's look at verses 6 through 11. The first is the retrospective. He acknowledged it, said, I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You, you dealt with it. But now verses 6 or 11 speaks of what's important in terms of instruction. David has confessed sufficient time has passed since he was going through this, and now he wants to offer counsel for people. It's often the case that when people are on the mountaintop and they're at the high end, you know, of that, that mountaintop experience where you're like, man, I'm right with God. That sudden mountaintop can suddenly become a platform where they just dive off and go headlong and regress right back into the same sin, right? You don't want that to happen. And that's verses 6 through 11. That's why this is proverbial. Look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly, let everyone who's a believer... Offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Don't hide it. Don't cover it. Go to God right away. Don't try to fake yourself out. God grants repentance. What happens? Surely in the great rush of, or in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. In other words, if you go to God, if you make this right, then the rush of waters, as if you're in a swirl of guilt, that will not affect you anymore. You are my hiding place for me, a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This is the picture of God's reconciling grace in our hearts where we know that we are right with God because we've gone to him when he may may be found. I remember the SUV commercial where it's like the mother driving down the road on kind of a a rocky cliff, you know, highway and you have tree branches coming over and, you know, thunder and lightning and rain and all of this. And it looks terrible from the outside, but on the inside, you know, everything's serene and beautiful and her children are in the back strapped in safely and, and napping. And she's going, oh, this is so nice because the car is so wonderful. Well, that may or may not be true. I just rode through some sheets of rain. That's stressful. It's not quite ice, but it's their version over there in the lower 48, the the lower part of the earth where the unbelievers are. No, just kidding. But no, but that SUV picture is a picture of Christianity. Life is going to stay tornadic and crazy, but inside we can have peace with God, right? The peace of God, which surpasses our understanding. I mean, we can't, our, we can't even understand. We can't even comprehend why we're at peace. Why should David be at peace? Why should he be happy? Look what he's done. He made a mess of the kingdom, a mess of his reputation, a mess of his life, a mess of his family. And yet he's right with God. The, the burden has been lifted. That's why. Because he sought the Lord and God became his hiding place a place of refuge, a place of safety, a place of preservation from trouble, shouts of deliverance. God is shouting around him deliverance, a praise song of deliverance like Zephaniah's prophecy in Zephaniah 3.17. King Josiah took over the kingdom after King Manasseh was so ungodly. It was 640 BC and 
Zephaniah's um, this prophecy says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love and he will exult over you with loud singing. It's knowing that Jesus Christ is singing a song over you of joy. It's the angels in heaven are all rejoicing. There's a party in heaven because the prodigal son has come home. That's the joy of our salvation. That's the, the joy of being right with God. So here's some Proverbs of not falling off the mountaintop into, back, back into sin. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curved with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. I've ridden a horse a time or two and they're your best friend until they want to go home, go back to the barn or whatever, right? And then the lowest tree branch or the fence is what they want to rub you off with. Oh, they love you all right. And then they don't. And that's what bit and bridle is for. But we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be stubborn. We don't want to have to be yanked back by God. And that's what, This is saying, don't be like that. Remember, God's watching you. Follow instruction. His eye is upon you. Look at verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Don't sacrifice the relational love of God. Steadfast love. Hesed love is God's commitment love to you. It's always there. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. It's always there, but don't sacrifice the joy of that love. Do you see the difference? Your sin, it can't separate you from Christ as a believer in, in terms of your eternity. But you can experience the separation of relationship because of unconfessed sins. That's the distinction. Don't go there. The nearness of God is our good. Surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And then verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I have to say, the singing here was awesome this morning. I enjoyed hearing the congregation, hearing you sing. And it's a sign of health. It really is. And that's this. That's the shout of joy that comes from singing. When we sing, I don't know what's um, loaded in the queue for us. We're going to finish with a song. We should sing as a response to this psalm, as a a response to knowing we are forgiven. And just to close, John Bunyan, he was a Puritan writer. He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, and it's an allegory of the Christian life. And the main character is Christian, who is, who is carrying the burden on his back. It's a big rucksack filled as a picture of his sins on his back. And at the beginning of the allegory, he goes through the narrow gate, which shows that he's a believer on the road to heaven, which is pictured as the celestial city. And he's on this narrow road. But at a certain point later, he comes face to face with the cross. And we're not to confuse that with his conversion experience because he's already converted. He's already believed, but he's still bearing the guilt burden on his back, even as a believer. Until he comes face to face with the cross, which is what we should do. Preaching the gospel to ourselves, seeing the cross again. 
And so Bunyan writes, so I, speaking for Christian, so I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed off his shoulder, from off his shoulders and fell from his back and began to tumble. And so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in and I saw it no more. Now we experience joy, hopefully, at our conversion. But don't be duped into the satanic lie that you're not supposed to be happy as a Christian once you get going in the Christian life. We're going to fail, but we have to go back to the cross afresh again and again where the burden of our heart rolls away. It's there by faith. We've, we've seen with sight and, and now we're happy all the day, right? We know the Lord Jesus. We know his forgiveness. Do you know it? Do you, do you experience it? Do you, do you sense the affection of the gospel in your heart? If not, go to God while he may be found. Seek the Lord and enjoy him today.